And as you are making your way to your seats, if you could uh, open your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi. And we're going to be continuing our study in Malachi. So Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 is what we're going to look at, right? And not, again, not an easy passage, okay? Um, not not the kind of passage you just go, man, I can't wait to get to church today and talk about this one. Um, another difficult passage, but we knew that getting into Malachi, right? It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, 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 an easy book, you could say, um, but that's one of the great things about preaching expositorily, just starting at the beginning of the book and going through it is, man, whatever the Lord lays in front of you is, is, is what we're going to talk about. And so um, we're going to dive into this text. And so let me read it first, then I'll pray for us. And I'll go ahead and warn you that when we get down to verses 15 and 16, um, your translation may say something significantly different than my translation. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, but it's because of the the difficulty of those two passages in terms of translation. So if you look across different versions, you will see a, a good bit of disparity, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. So verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a chance to worship together, God. We, uh, we pray for, um, the ministry of your preached word all throughout, um, our, our community, throughout our county, um, this Lord's day. God, we pray for, um, our sister churches, um, who, who have, have shared from your word today and ask a blessing, um, on them, um, to the extent that the, the things that came from those pulpits, um, was in keeping with your word and your gospel. Um, Father, we pray that you would bless them. God, that you would use, um, that word going forth to, to touch people's hearts and to meet, um, them at the particular place that they are at. God, that you would bless those churches and bless those ministries. God, that you would bring a, a time and a spirit of revival in our community. Um, that, that those who do not know Jesus Christ would come to know him, that those who are, 
uh, asleep in Christ, um, who, who know him and yet have been lulled into, um, uh, got a, a place where they are not focused on, on you and, and the things of your kingdom, God, that you would awaken those people, that you would bring awakening and revival, um, and that you would draw our community to yourself. God, that we could be a part of that through the ministry of our church and through our personal witness to our, our friends and our family, uh, to our coworkers and to the people that we engage with on a daily basis. God, help us to that end. We ask that your spirit would go before us. And as we open your word, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts in a particular way. God, that you would shine uh, a light on this text, that you would shine a light on our hearts. God, that we would understand it truly, that it would convict where it needs to convict, that it would um, educate where it needs to educate. God, that it would comfort where it needs to comfort. God, that where it would embolden um, uh, where it needs to embolden, um, and that you would use your word to accomplish your work. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, man, n- not an easy passage. A passage um, uh, largely about divorce, um, and here's the deal. You might say, Ash, didn't we just talk about divorce like in the last few months? And the answer is we did. Uh, as we were going through the book of Luke, we came to that section in Luke chapter 17 where we talked about divorce. And so here's what I'm going to do. I, I, I don't want, um, I, I don't want to feel like we are just, uh, um, singling that sin out in a, in a unique way and, and, and attacking it in a particular way. And so, um, a lot of the comments that I made about um, divorce in in um, Luke chapter seventeen, um, we you can go back and listen to those. Okay, and so we're gonna we're gonna sort of lean this sermon in a different way. It's still gonna obviously be connected to those issues, but we're gonna zoom in on a few things that are a little more subtle in the text um, and and emphasize those towards the end of our message. And so again, as we talk about divorce, man, divorce is a place where there is a whole lot of shame. Um, a whole lot of guilt that comes along with that. People's um, lives have been wrecked um, by it uh, as 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 children, um, as spouses, as as parents, and so we recognize that there's a whole lot that can be tied up in that, right? And and we're, we're not in any way trying to add guilt um, in any way. We want God to convict our hearts of the sins that we've committed, um, and, and we want Him to to bring us to restoration. And so. I would encourage you to remember in this passage, as we talked about last week, he begins Malachi reminding the people of his great, sovereign, electing, covenantal love for them, right? Um, That is the basis in which he says these things, okay? And so he is speaking to his people saying, um, even though there's conviction in the message, there is hope in it because he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them back because he wants them to live in holiness before him. Okay. Um, in fact, he, he begins the passage recalling that, that those first verses of, of chapter one in verse 10, it says, have we not all one father has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Okay, so God is is we're we're hearkening back to those those first verses we read um, where we talked about the fatherhood of God, about how the Father deserves honor, and we as a people, um, Israel as a people, has not given God that honor. And and here's the point: it's it's pointing towards something. Um, it's, it's pointing towards that idea that there should be a unity, right? There should be mutual support. There should be a love and care for those who are in the community of faith already. 
All right. So he's saying he's, he's not talking about an idea of like the universal brotherhood of mankind or something like that. He's saying we as, as the people of God, as the Israelites, we have one father. And because we have one father, one God who has created us, we should treat each other in a, in a particular way. And yet that's not what's going on. They are treating each other in unfaithfulness. And obviously the particular way that they're doing that is in within the marriage covenant. Now, here's the, the reason why I think he, he brings us back to that fatherhood of God idea is because here's a reality. Um, honoring God is the foundation of the way that we honor other people in our lives. Okay. And so what happens is when we have thrown away uh, our, our honor for God, that begins to trickle down into other relationships. The secular world would probably disagree with us on that, right? They would say, no, you don't have to believe in God to, to, to live right by people and honor people and, and be faithful in your relationships and stuff like that. Um, and the reality is, is I think they're wrong. Um, I think at the end of the day, now again, not in every single situation, not in every single relationship, not in every single way, not all at once, incrementally, incrementally, progressively, but as we dishonor God, it becomes a whole lot easier to dishonor the other relationships in our life, okay? So I think that's why he starts in this place. And it makes sense that the relationship that would be most directly affected are the ones that are closest to us, that demand the most faithfulness from us, like the marriage relationship. Israel's covenant unfaithfulness has been made manifest, you could say, in the ways that they are breaking their marriage covenants and their commitment to the way God has designed marriage. And there's two things that he says are a problem, right? You probably noticed that when we read the passage. There are two issues here. The first one we see in verse 11, the second half of verse 11 and 12. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob that any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Okay. So, so the picture that he is painting there is a situation that has arisen where there has been intermarriage between the Jews and non-Jewish people in, in, um, in Jerusalem in the surrounding area, right? God continually throughout the scriptures warns them not to do this. He says, you don't need to be intermarrying with people um, outside of the Jewish faith. And again, that's a key thing to understand. This is not a racial issue, right? We're not talking about marrying people who are of a different race. We're marrying people who are of a different socioeconomic background or a cultural background. That's not the issue. The issue is the religious issue. He's saying, don't marry people who are outside of, of the, the worship of, of the one true God. That's the problem. Obviously, we recognize there are lots of stories where people who are outside the covenant, um, people who are racially distinct from the Jews, entered into the covenant. Characters like Ruth in the Bible, right, who was a Moabitess. She was not of the people of God, and yet she was brought into the people of God because of her faith. Um, he's not talking about racial issues. He's talking about religious issues. And so we know from the scriptures that over and over again, he says, do not be, the term that gets used is unequally yoked. Right. Don't intimately connect yourself to someone who does not share your beliefs and values and worship. 
Because when you do, there are going to be problems that come up from that, okay? A, a perfect example, and a prime example of that is the character of Solomon in the scriptures, right? Solomon, he begins to collect wives, and he has all these wives and all these concubines, but he's bringing them not from the Jewish people, but from the, the, the pagan people who live around him. He's making political alliances with the neighboring countries. And what we find in the scripture is that even though Solomon was wise and godly in many ways, the longer he lived, the more the influence of those pagan relationships began to pull him away from the Lord, okay? And so we see that. So God warns us about that. We realize that throughout history, oftentimes, people use marriage as a way to build bridges or seal deals or uh, sort of win some sort of economic or political or... or um social peace and prosperity. And that's probably what's going on here. Probably what's happening is the Israelites have come back to Jerusalem, right? And they're trying to get their footing. They're trying to get things started. And so they start realizing, you know, it would probably be beneficial to, to marry people of influence who are already here in the land, even if they are not of the Jewish faith. And so that's, that's probably one of the, the main things that is going on there. There could be other things going on. Um, it could be that they are, they are marrying for, for other reasons and, and, and stuff. And so we'll talk about that in just a second, but that's probably the main thing. But God says, I don't want you to be unequally yoked. I don't want you to be united intimately to somebody who doesn't share your most core beliefs and values. Obviously, we have in a community, we have, a, we have some kind of relationship with people. We're obviously supposed to be reaching out in love and, and, and preaching the gospel to people and, and serving others or whatever. But that's different from saying, this is someone who I've brought into the closest areas of my life, like in a marriage relationship, okay? And so he says, the first problem you got is you're taking these wives who are of foreign gods. But verse 13 says there's a second problem. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. And then you ask God, why do you do this? Right? The people are crying. They're complaining. We've already seen this. God, you won't accept our offerings. You're not blessing us the way that we thought you were going to when we came back to the promised land. Why not? Second half of 14 says, because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So again, probably what's happening is, is men in the community, the Jewish community, are divorcing their wives and then marrying other women. Probably, in connection with the previous verse, probably pagan women in the community, Maybe for social advantage, maybe to, to um, secure alliances or something like that in the community. It may have something to do with the fact that oftentimes many of those pagan religions um, were were very sexualized in nature. And so it may just be a function of, of these men's lusts and coming into a new context and being enticed away from um, from the worship of God and from their wives by these illicit um, sexual practices in these other pagan religions. Um, or it may just be the typical kind of thing that we've seen throughout history is, is as, as boredom or grudges or things set in, discontent sets in in a marriage and in a culture where men had all of the power in terms of, of divorce and, and things like that, that, that husbands are just saying, I'm, I'm going to move on and I'm going to find a new wife. And so, um, they're divorcing their wives and, and remarrying. 
But what we see in that passage is that there's divorce. I mean, the, the, the marriage relationship is broken on both sides, right? It's broken as people are entering it, and it's broken as people are trying to uh, get out of the marriage. But the woman, it says, is your wife by covenant. And it makes this idea where it says God has been the witness between you and your wife, okay? That's that idea that we talk about. When we talk about marriage, we say your marriage is not just between a husband and a wife. Your marriage is between a husband, a wife, and God, right? There's a third person in that covenant. And so just as the husband and wife owe each other certain things in that covenant, we owe something to God in our covenant of marriage. And so God says, I've been a witness on behalf of your wife to say you have broken the covenant that you promised uh, to her at the time of your marriage, okay? Now, that's sort of the general thing that's going on here. What we're going to do is is, is we're going to zoom in a little bit on the stuff that comes after this in verses 15 and 16. But like I told you a minute ago, verses 15 and 16 are weird, okay? And, and here's what makes them weird is the Hebrew, and, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm just telling you um, what I've learned from, from studying it. But, but you see it in the translations is that the, the, the problem is, is the, the Hebrew in these passages is convoluted and obscure. So what happens is when you read it, you're sort of like, if, if you know Hebrew, you're like, it could be saying different things depending on how you organize this thing and take it. And, and again, you'll notice that if you go on some Bible app or something like Bible hub where you can compare a bunch of different versions in one look or whatever, and you can see the distinctions. But here's, here's for our context, here's the important thing. What's interesting is that the beginning part of verse 15 is, is difficult. Um, and the beginning part of 16 is difficult, but the second halves of each of those verses are not difficult. They are pretty much agreed on by everybody. And again, you would see that if you, if you went and kind of cross-reference these. Those are the places that we're going to zoom in on. Okay. Um, not that there isn't a certain context that we could get to in those other ones, but because of a little bit of ambiguity, we're going to zoom in on the places that we are a little more sure on. Okay. Uh, and, and the right translation of those. Okay. So look at verse 15, the second half of verse 15, it says, and what was the one God seeking or what was God seeking from the one godly offspring? So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Okay, there's no question about that translation. Then verse 16, the second half of 16, again, so guard yourself in your spirit, he says again, and do not be faithless. Okay, so let's zoom in on some ideas that are right there. What I want to do is make kind of three comments, two more specific to the passage, and one a little more general to, to the whole passage in terms of of the world that we find ourselves in, okay? And so so here's the first one. The first thing is this. Men, particularly, but obviously women, the reason why it's focusing on men in this passage is because men had all the power of divorce, right? Women didn't have the the, the power of divorce in, in first century Judaism, okay? The men did. So he's addressing the men, but obviously now we live in a different world, right? And women do have that power. And so so the, 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 the passage is addressed to women, I think, as much as it is to men. But it would be to say this, men and women, be mindful of what's going on in your heart and head. Okay? Be mindful of what's going on in your heart and head. Twice this passage says, guard yourself in your spirit. Sort of places that 
the phrase is bookends at the end of this passage, beginning of 15, end of 15. Guard yourself in your spirit. Okay, so there's this little joke that goes around on on uh, YouTube, stuff like that, about guard your heart. You heard that, right? It's 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 the thing that joke about stuff that Christians say or whatever. It's like, hey, guard your heart, man. Guard your heart. And these these guys are just this little skit, and they're walking around just going, hey, guard your heart, man. Guard your heart, right? Because it's the kind of thing that's sort of this easy proverbial wisdom that that people Christians just say all the time. But here's the deal: guard your heart, man. <laughs> okay, uh, guard your heart. That's what this passage is getting at. In the context of, of divorce, he's saying you need to guard your spirit within yourself because, man, there are all kinds of things and not primarily external factors, but internal factors that lead us to a mindset that will lead us down the trail to divorce, to putting away our, our spouses, okay? Certainly, there are influences from the outside world, but, man, the reality is this. Divorce begins in our hearts, typically, with lust, with covetousness, with discontentedness, with self-centeredness, with self-righteousness, right? That's where these things get started. We don't just wake up one day and go, I think I'm going to get divorced, right? Something begins to burn and boil in us little by little until it comes to a breaking point. And so Malachi is saying, listen, you need to guard your hearts. You need to guard the spirit, um, guard yourself in your spirit to make sure um, that as these, these little foxes come into to the vineyard, that you are weeding them out, right? That you are getting rid of these things before they have a chance um, to, to set up shop. This, this past week, um, Another scandal popped up in, in the Christian world, right? And it was, it was released that, that a publisher of a, uh, well-known Christian magazine had been making sexually explicit comments and inappropriate things to, to people on his staff. And, and here was, here was the, the, the sort of gotcha moment is that this was this, a, a magazine that had been very vocal in its opposition to Donald Trump for those same kind of reasons. And then come to find out that their editor had been doing similar things while he was decrying somebody else. Okay. What does that tell you? It tells me that what we're talking about here is not political. It's not about whether you're on the right or the left or a Republican or a Democrat or what the temptation that he is dealing with is something that is attacks everybody. Okay. Um, the, a heart that is led away from its moral covenant with their wife. Is something that can happen to any of us. And so he says, guard yourself against these things. Be always watching for ways that your heart is already starting to turn away, looking across the fence, you know, um, uh, thinking in your head, boy, you know, I deserve better, or I wish things had turned out differently. Those little ideas are the seeds of what he's talking about. And so, you know what we do in, in these things? Um, we guard ourselves by preaching to ourselves. You ever heard that phrase? Preach to yourself. All the time, preach to yourself, right? Don't let yourself tell you what is true. You tell yourself what is true. That sounds weird, right? Um, preach the word of God back to yourself. As you sit there and go through your day and you're like, well, I'm discontented and I don't like this and I deserve better and whatever. 
Don't let the voices in your head tell you the way things are. You turn back and say, no, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the gospel says. I don't believe those things about myself. I don't believe them about my spouse. I reject those things. This is what is true. This is what is right. And I'm going to say these things to myself. I'm going to preach these things to myself. Fill your mind with things that contradict that temptation from the flesh and from the world. Things of God. Be honest with yourself about those little discontentedness and inconsistencies that you have. Be accountable to other people is another great way, right? Talk to people about this stuff, okay? Find somebody that you can trust, that you can share with and say, man, I, you know, I'm just feeling this way or thinking this way or I have these hangups or whatever. And somebody can come back and preach and speak the gospel back into your life also, okay? Guard your hearts and minds so that you do not fall into the traps that Malachi is talking about, that the people of Israel have obviously fallen into. And obviously that we in our culture have fallen into as well. Okay, second thing, just as, as, a, as a point to kind of zoom in. Marriage is at least as much about your children as it is about your, your own relationship. Okay, and I would say probably more so. Okay, notice that verse 15. He's the beginning part of that passage we said was difficult to translate. Okay. But the second half is easier. And it says, what was God seeking? And so the assumption there is what was he seeking in the marriage relationship? What is he seeking in the union of, of a man and a wife? What is he seeking in the community um, of, of Israel manifested these marriages? What is God seeking? Godly offspring. That's what he's seeking. That's what he wants out of that. Okay. Marriage is for the propagation of godly children. Okay. Not solely, but probably primarily. Okay. Now that's maybe not an idea that you have been presented. Okay. But I think it's, I think it's right. Marriage is primarily for the propagation of godly children. What's the first thing that God told us to do in Genesis? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's the beginning of it. That's that's sort of the, the, the it's it's the first mission that we have. A godly, stable environment for the procreation and upbringing of children, for nurturing them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, is the primary reason for marriage. Because God wants godly offspring. You know what God wants? He wants more worshipers, right? He wants more people that he is in relationship with. He wants more children, but he wants children who know him and love him and honor him and worship him. And the best way to make that happen is through godly family, godly relationships within the family, and bringing your children up in, in a godly home, okay? Now, here's the deal. We have all, none of us have done that perfectly. Some of us have come from families where there were no believers in the household, right? And then, and you have, um, come to the Lord or, or probably more specifically, the Lord has found you in that process. Um, and you have still come to know Jesus and, and are seeking to follow him, right? We're not, we're not trying to add guilt or shame on people where they're in a situation. They say, oh, well, you know, uh, we've messed up in a lot of ways or, or I have a spouse that's not a believer or, or, you know, there's not, we're not here to cast shame on anybody. But the point is to say, man, this is the way God designed marriage to work. He wants it to be between 
a believing husband and wife who are committed to love and, and, and stay in the covenant of marriage for their entire lives. And that is the best situation for children to be raised in. So again, man, this touches on both sides of the issue in this passage. Um, being married to an unbeliever and to the divorce side of it, right? Uh, we don't properly, and I, and I can just tell you this from counseling young men and women who are in dating relationships with non-believers and they're sitting there going, I think it's gonna be fine. You know, it's, it's, I, th- I think we can work through all of our issues and, and, and whatever. The reality is this, we, because we think of marriage so self-centeredly, because we think of it first and foremost about me and my relationship with another person, we think to ourselves, well, I'm a believer and they're not, and I can deal with it from my faith perspective. So I think it'll be okay for me to, to be engaged or married to this, this unbeliever. But the reality is, is we don't think far, far enough down the line and think, but what are the consequences going to be for my children in these situations? Okay. If I have a spouse who doesn't believe the same things I do, in fact, maybe is antagonistic to the things that I believe, how is that going to play out when we get down the road in this situation? Usually we're thinking of ourselves, and that's why he says, you've got to begin at the beginning, say, don't be unequally yoked, right? If if the goal is to produce, that's a weird word, but to, to raise, to nurture godly children, then begin at the beginning with two people who both believe in the Lord. But it also comes in again with divorce, right? And again, these are, these are hard things to say because of, of all the issues and all the, 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 the baggage that comes along with these issues. But the plain truth is, is that most divorces are inward focused. They're about ourselves and our relationships and they downplay, if not completely ignore, the fallout and the repercussions of those divorces to communities and families and particularly to the children of that marriage. And again, everybody says the opposite. What do they say? Well, we're, you know, we're thinking about divorce. We're really worried about the kids, right? We're worried about how this is going to affect the kids. And I'm not saying they don't believe that, but the reality is at the end of the day, their actions tend to play out that they're more concerned with their own lives and their own happiness uh, and everything else. Because here's the deal. We say it all the time. Well, I think the kids would be better off if we got divorced. It's not good for the kids to be in a situation where, where the parents are fighting and, and, you know, disagree with each other. It's going to be better off for them if, if we separate. And man, all I can say is, I think you're wrong. 99 times out of 100, I think you're wrong. Um, I've been a youth minister for a long time. Seen lots of kids come through um, who have been from very traumatic divorce situations, and obviously, man, there's 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 really bad situations, and there are less bad situations. Um, but I can tell you that there were things that nobody thought was going to be the case, right? There there's baggage that comes from that the breakup of that marriage in the lives of children um, that that nobody ever anticipated, and particularly so as I think he's addressing in this passage, when you have a capricious or a selfish father who walks away from a family, because that says something particular, right? It makes it even harder to be a child in that family and then to look as, here's the deal, dads, I don't know if you realize this, 
but you should. You are the picture of God in the minds of your children. Okay? And the way you live your life will add all kinds of unintentional baggage and ideas to the way your kids perceive God as father. Okay? It just will. Okay? You don't mean to do that. You didn't intend to do that. It is just the nature of having children and being a father. Your children are going to learn things about what father God is like by the way you live your life. And if the reality is, as you have said, I'm the kind of father who chose my own happiness over the happiness of my family and my children, that's going to tell your kids something about God. Okay? Is it something that is impossible to fix? No. Many people in this room have come from divorced families, right? You know the hurt and heartache that comes from it. You know the stuff that goes on in your head about those relationships. There is healing. There is reconciliation. There is new life and all those things. God can come into really broken situations and bring beautiful things out of them, right? But we don't start there. We don't start there saying, hey, he'll fix all this stuff in the end so I can go ahead and, and wreck it now. That's not the way we, we think. While companionship, we'll kind of move on with this, while companionship and sexual gratification even seem to be the emphasis of most modern uh, people when it comes to marriage or just pairing up or whatever, God in this passage is reminding us that children are not only the, the forgotten focus of marriage, but they are the forgotten victims when marriages fall apart. Okay? And again, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that means that, you know, you cater your kids and there's not time for mom and dad. And that's not, we're not talking about any of that stuff, right? But we are talking about the central point of, of what God is using marriage for. Um, in the world. You want to know something? This is just a side thought. This is free. You don't even have to pay me for this one, okay? You, you want to know, we look back at ancient uh, uh, people from other generations, and I mean like hundreds of years ago, and thousands of years ago, and we think it's so weird that these people didn't have this idea of romantic marriages like we have, right? These people were just like having families agree on things. People were being married off in, in, in different situations. Like people didn't really know their, they certainly didn't fall in love with people the way we do. That's so weird, right? It's so weird. The reason is, largely, is because they weren't thinking in those contexts. You know what they were thinking? They were thinking, this person will be a good father, wife, husband, uh, mother, provider, nurturer. For what? To raise godly children. That was the context of it, okay? So if you could find somebody who could, who could be, that's the main thing about marriage. And so you find somebody who's like that, and, and you're, you're, you're probably going to do okay. The other stuff would be bonus, okay? But we've shifted it all. And we've said, no, the main thing is me and me being happy. And then we get in a lot of problems that way, okay? So the defining um, characteristic of, of, of marriage is probably our relationship with our children, um, or at least the, the task of raising godly children, okay? Last thing, and this is a little more general idea, okay? tying into marriage, tying into divorce, tying into all these different things. It is my belief that marriage is going to be the defining characteristic of the Christian faith in the next generation, okay? It is going to be the thing 
that distinguishes Christianity, distinguishes Christians from the larger community. Okay? And not just marriage, but the raising of children. Um, you probably have read things like this. You've seen it on the news. Marriage rates plummeting, particularly in our country, but really all in Western nations. Um, birth rates plummeting. Um, lowest numbers we've seen in since they started taking readings, right? Since they started measuring these things. Um, and there's lots and lots of reasons for all that. I mean, there's all kinds of factors, socioeconomic and, and social and all these different things. Okay. Um, but it's what we see. Marriage and, and birth rates are collapsing. As our culture becomes more secular, we care less about marriage and we care less about having kids. That just seems to be the deal. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago on Facebook, I just put this little thing up. I, I heard it from, from Al Moeller on the briefing. And he talked about how in the nation of Japan, which is the, the, the golden child of this trend, the nation of Japan sells more adult diapers than it does baby diapers. Okay. If you have a culture that sells more adult diapers than, than baby diapers, you're in trouble. In fact, everybody acknowledges Japan is in trouble as a culture, as a society, they are in free fall. And pretty much the, the general consensus is there's no way to fix it now. It's over. Obviously, Japan's always going to have some people in it or whatever, but Japan as a, as a, as a nation is over because it's upside down on these things. And the reason is, is because it has had a vast secularization since World War II. Okay. Um, it has moved away from traditional concepts. We're not even talking about Christian concepts, right? But traditional concepts of family and marriage and moved to a general secular kind of view of the world. And with it, marriage and birth rates plummet. Okay, um, there are societal factors that are connected to that. But the Bible affirms the goodness, right? Not just the okayness, the goodness of marriage, the goodness of childbearing. Where current cultural secularism devalues both of those things, right? And here's the deal. We have to recognize, we have to take some some ownership of some of these things, right? We have a culture that has separated sex and relationships from commitment and procreation, but we should be honest that it is we who started that trend, okay? And what I mean by that is it was with the advent of, let me put it this way, we were pro-choice before everybody else was pro-choice, and what I mean by that is we were pro-choice when it comes to procreation and we were pro-choice when it comes to who we, when we can get divorced. So you look back into the forties and fifties and sixties and even among heterosexual evangelicals, whoever, right? We were already saying, you know, and I think we should loosen up these divorce laws because I want to be able to get divorced when I want to. And we are going to take on um, this new technology of birth control and not even think about what the repercussions of that may be down the line, because man, I want to enjoy myself with having, without having to worry about all these dang kids coming from that. All right. Now, again, I'm not saying that birth control is wrong. Don't hear me saying that. Right. But what I am saying is we opened Pandora's box. Okay. And now it's gone nuts. Right. 
the sexual revolution has exploded into everything. Okay. But we should recognize we, we own a little bit of that because it began in, in places much closer to home for most of us. Church people, the broader culture imbibed those things, but it imbibed these attitudes that are categorically non-Christian, right? Children are a good thing. They are a blessing. We should consider them a blessing, right? Marriage is a good thing, okay? Not just relationships, not just having somebody to love, not just being able to share your life with somebody. Marriage is a good thing. Again, it's not ultimate, right? All you got to do is read the New Testament for a little while, and you see that Paul says, man, singleness is a great thing, too particularly when it is devoted to the Lord, okay? Not when not when you're like, oh, yeah, I love being single so that I can live for myself all the time. No, that's not what he, he uh, encourages. But he says singleness is a good thing, too, as long as it is dedicated to the Lord. But marriage is a good thing. And having children is a good thing. In a broad sense, people used to see all these things as good, And now we tend to see them as somehow oppressive or burdensome in some way. But as Christians in the coming generation, I think that's, that's what I'm talking about. And we may be, and this maybe this is an exaggeration. I don't know. We'll see, but I kind of feel like it's not. We may be the only people getting married in 20 or 30 years. Like Christian may be a uniquely I mean, marriage may be a uniquely Christian thing the way the Lord's Supper is, right? You don't see other people just going around going, ah, sometimes we get together, we eat a little bread, and we drink a little wine, and we, we say it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Nobody else does that. Like, that's a, that's a peculiar thing that we do, right? I kind of think that maybe in 20 or 30 years, marriage is going to be a peculiar thing. Yes, conservative Muslims, conservative Jews will do it too, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a particular thing to those um, who have a, a religious belief in a God who has ordained these things as good. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's going to be this great revival and all of a sudden everything's going to change and, and people will recognize that all the goofy stuff we've been doing for the last 60 years is bankrupt and we're going to shift back and do maybe so, but I got a feeling like no. So that is to say, we should have the same heart about marriage and children as God has about marriage and children. We should care about these things and value these things the way God does. And that's going to affect the way that we think about, certainly about divorce, about having children, about raising children, um, who we marry, and what the consequences of breaking that marriage covenant would be. Amen? So here's what I want you to do. You might say, that's a weird place to stop, Ash. And the answer is, yeah, it probably was. Um, so what I want to do is, is, is have a time of prayer. Just that we would go before the Lord and um, pray for our own our own hearts. Okay, again, I don't think there's anybody in this room who's not susceptible to these things. Okay, I have had too many conversations with people who I looked at from the outside and I thought everything is good and everything is fine and everything is going to be great, and then come to find out that two people are splitting up um, or getting divorced or whatever. Okay, none of us are beyond this. And so we need to go before the Lord and ask him to help us in these things, right? To guard our hearts from the dangers that are lurking in, um, to guard our marriages from any kind of influence from the outside that could 
um, that could come in and destroy those things, okay? Young people. We got a lot of unmarried people in here, right? Do not be unequally yoked. Some cute little oily bow hunk is going to come by one day and he's going to be like, oh, you so pretty. And you're going to be like, you so good looking. And it's, and you're going to say, I bet you we can make it work, man. I bet you we can make it work. Like he's a good dude. He's nice. He, he, he's, he's nice to me. I'm sure we could make this work. Okay. And guess what? Maybe you could, but you're going to come to a roadblock when it comes to raising your children. Because there are going to be these two voices within the same house. And one of them is saying, I think these things are of ultimate value. And the rest of this is nonsense. And this other person is going to say, no, I think these things are of ultimate value. And all that other stuff is nonsense. Okay? You don't want to be in that place. You don't want to end up there. Okay? It's going to make life a lot harder. So start thinking now. You know what? Does that mean it might take you longer to find the right person? Maybe so. Okay? But probably... Um, if we narrow our vision a little bit and look for the right person, um, then, then we pray that God will bless that. Okay. Um, and other than that, I just want us to pray for these things in general, um, for our culture, for our community. Uh, I was talking with, with a member of our church this week and just talking about, he was talking about his friends, people who were his age, you know, mid twenties, early thirties, stuff like that. And just like the mess of relationships, um, that he sees on a daily basis of the values of people, even people who at times are, are claimed to be Christian in some way, right? At least nominally Christian, right? And yet the, the, the values are so out of whack. Um, that's going to affect our community. That's going to affect things down the line. It's going to affect who your children end up marrying one day. Think about that. Um, I want to pray for those things. I want us to pray for those things, to keep these things in our minds and hearts, okay? So let's go to the Lord. Um, I know I'm kind of going over a little bit. Um, and so let me let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll have uh, Amy and, and Marlene come back up here and, and close us in, in worship. Father God, Father, we recognize um, from the get-go in, in Genesis, in Eden, um, that we have the propensity within ourselves to mess up, um, the male female relationship. God, the, that we have the propensity in ourselves to take the good things that you have given us and, and because of our own sinfulness, our own willfulness, um, to mess them up and live in ways that, that do not line up with the, what, what, what you intended. Father, we ask for your blessing and mercy when it comes to these things. God, that you would help us to make wise and godly decisions when it comes to uh, our, our choice of spouse, God. As we enter into the marriage covenant, God, that we would, as we've talked about before, that we would burn the boats, um, that we would be committed and, and, and see it as a, a covenant in which we cannot go back from, that we would seek um, our, our spouse and seek you uh, in, that, in that covenant relationship, um, Come good times or bad, in sickness and health, for richer or for poorer, all those vows that we say, God, that you would make that real in our lives. God, that we would recognize the 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 dear nature, um, the value, um, uh, God, of family, of children, of a life lived in commitment um, to a husband and a wife, God, that you would bless those things. 
that you would use them as a witness to the community uh, of your love and your mercy, God, and that, as we know from, from the New Testament, that in our marriages, the gospel would be displayed, um, that the relationship between Christ and his church would be seen, and that the love and commitment that is there, the grace and forgiveness, um, the daily care and provision um, that you show to your church would be seen in our marriages. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song.
Amen. Uh, glad you're here tonight. Sorry, it went a little bit long, but we got started a little bit late, so I'm gonna blame it on that. Um, we'll be in Malachi again. Um, again, man, these messages are not going to get necessarily easier um, uh, because it's it's a it's a convicting kind of uh, book. Um, Malachi is, and so but we're going to keep on going through because the cool thing is, is we get to the end um, and we see. Uh, a, a prophecy of, of Jesus just in time for Easter, and so we'll we'll end on that when we get to Easter Sunday. But um, glad you're here. Good to see you. Here to spend addiction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn His face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.
Yeah, yeah. Thank you. 